Hey, I'm Dark Listers. It's your host, Kasha Patel. On today's episode, we're going to talk to Azine Gorieshi, who broke several big sexual misconduct stories, including Neil deGrasse Tyson and Jeff Marcy. We're also going to learn about an ongoing issue in scientific publishing, how to tell if a scientific paper is true. But first, I want to take you back to Tuesday, April 15th, 2013 in Boston, Massachusetts. Now, I was getting my master's degree in science journalism at Boston University, and I was actually planning on leaving my internship a little early to stand at the finish line of the Boston Marathon to cheer on the runners. Luckily, though, I got caught up at work because around 2.50 p.m., my phone started buzzing relentlessly with messages. Stay away from Copley Square. People are screaming. There's so much smoke. Everyone, please be safe. I couldn't find any news on Google, but Twitter was filled with real-time reports. A bomb had exploded at the marathon. Within 30 minutes, news reports were coming in, but social media was just quicker. Now today, when there's a disaster, a lot of us automatically pair news reports with social media feeds to stay on top of breaking news or to check in with friends and family. And now, federal agencies like the U.S. Coast Guard are actually starting to incorporate this data from all these different social media sites to improve their search and rescue efforts and emergency responses. They call it crisis mapping. Here's Evan Tuarog, who's a senior cadet at the U.S. Coast Guard Academy. He describes himself as a data nerd and started working on this project two years ago with his advisor. So crisis mapping is a concept that dates back to before the Haitian earthquake in 2010, but since then there really hasn't been a major response that's demanded it for the Coast Guard. Until Hurricane Harvey in August 2017. Hurricane Harvey flooded the Houston, Texas area and caught a lot of people off guard without enough time to evacuate. Harvey kind of came out of nowhere and it was a particularly bad event. Suddenly you have four plus feet of rain getting dumped on the city of Houston. So what happens when you have a flat area with that much rain, like really catastrophic flooding? And a lot of those people start calling 911 and even if you have 100 operators on the line, you still might have 10,000 people calling at the same time. There's just no way to handle that sort of volume. So what ended up happening is you had these wait periods that ended up extending four, six, even eight hours to reach a 911 operator. And the scenario that unfortunately played out too many times across the city of Houston is you're a family of four that's been forced onto your roof by floodwaters and they're continuing to rise higher and higher and higher and you've been on hold with 911 for hours. It's getting dark now and your phone's at 7% battery. Like, what are you going to do? And the solution that a lot of people ended up turning to was social media. Because maybe you can't reach 911, but a friend or a family member can on your behalf. Tuareg's team actually worked with an NGO that collected a thousand social media posts of people asking for 911 help. Essentially, they set up an algorithm to search Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram for keywords. These messages were something like, my family has been forced onto the roof, someone can rescue me, come help. Tuareg then placed these geotagged posts on a map to see where were people posting from. So we said, okay, if a helicopter pilot is responding to a 911 heat map versus a social media heat map, where are they going? These 1,000 social media messages involving around 5,000 survivors was actually a small number compared to the more than 30,000 911 phone calls. 
But Tuarog noticed a difference between the locations of emergency social media posts versus where the telephone calls were made. And one of the things that we ended up finding out is that there were neighborhoods that were completely different between social media and 911. And that there were kind of these dark spots, these black holes, where 911 wasn't necessarily picking up calls for help, but social media was. These were areas where the wait times to make it through to a 911 operator were really long, so people turned to social media. Now, to be clear, calling 911 is still the preferred method of asking for help because the infrastructure is already set up to process and respond to those phone calls. But Tuareg is slowly making strides of how to incorporate these social media posts in rescue efforts. Before we send that helicopter out, before we send that flight team out, let's have somebody look at this and say, is this legit? Um, and that's kind of where the Coast Guard and um, FEMA and other response organizations have kind of pushed over the last year or so. FEMA's been doing some incredible work in terms of um, they've stood up a crowdsourcing unit that not only does social media monitoring, but they're looking at other data sources as well. And they're doing it in a really flexible, innovative way. Tuarog is referring to the crowdsourcing unit within the Federal Emergency Management Agency, or FEMA. The crowdsourcing unit, which had its first activation for a natural disaster in 2017, partners with private and nonprofit organizations to gather data and develop specific crowdsourced products related to a disaster. For instance, during Hurricane Maria, FEMA needed to know which of Puerto Rico's 71 hospitals had power and which were closed. So they asked for help from an established volunteer network called the Standby Task Force, which often helps out FEMA during critical times. So the official side was on the ground trying to get information. So it was really a different tactic as opposed to the volunteers uh, leveraging um, collaboration online to just find information that it could uh, through various untraditional channels. That's Dr. Sophia Liu, a crowd sorceress, as she calls herself. She currently serves as a FEMA crowdsourcing coordinator. She says in 36 hours, volunteers were able to provide updates on 33 of the 71 hospitals. Officials only got information on 30. The volunteers also found out extra information, like which facilities could provide dialysis treatment. There's sometimes this misconception that people think it's just members of the public that are providing information, but oftentimes it's also um, mainstream news as well as official channels, such as federal agencies that are pushing official information out. So that's often why these digital volunteers can provide faster information because that's they're curating and collating all this information more quickly than how it's being done on the official efforts. Lou says in other contexts, she's also used apps and social media platforms like Nextdoor, Waze, and GasBuddy to learn what road, energy, and gas conditions are like at the local level. Now, they're starting to incorporate this data from these crowdsourced platforms more formally in emergency responses. Really, our main goal has been to uh, increase and improve situational awareness during disaster so that it can improve decision-making um, among the emergency management community. Now, you know, part of what makes social media fun is that it's such a fast way to connect with others and to be heard, which I guess can also sometimes make it addictive. But all of those characteristics make it pretty useful for providing valuable information in urgent situations. And at the end of the day, FEMA, the Coast Guard, and so many organizations just want to help rescue people in dangerous situations. And just maybe social media and crowdsourced platforms can help with that. 
Next, we're going to dive into the world of scientific publishing and actually point out some oversights in how we deem if a paper is important. Here's reporter Jared Sport. In 1980, a five-sentence letter to the editor entered the scientific literature and became a cornerstone of the opioid crisis. It stated that patients rarely developed an addiction to opioids in the hospital, a claim that drug companies jumped on and extrapolated for their marketing, and other scientists incorporated in their own work. Today, we know that the conclusions later drawn from that letter were deeply flawed. Millions of people have struggled with opioid addiction, and hundreds of thousands have died from overdose. Yet, a 2017 analysis showed that references to the letter had appeared in more than 600 scientific articles, most of the time uncritically. Things might even continue to be cited after they have been proven wrong. That's Veronique Kiermer, publisher and executive editor of the Public Library of Science, or PLOS, which publishes several journals. She is talking about a big question in science publishing right now. How do we keep track of whether or not a paper is still considered, well, true? You can think of the body of scientific papers like a vast network, with each paper cross-referenced to others through citations. The unit of communication and credit in science is a research article. This is how scientists disseminate their results and share them with the rest of the scientific community. Scientists often use the number of citations an article receives as a proxy for importance, along with the prestige of the journal it's published in. Prestige is a, call it a social attitude. It's not an objective fact about uh, the journal. But if you want to be more quantitative about prestige, then you look at citation counts. Uh, how often are the articles in a given journal cited? You can actually count that up. That's Peter Suber, director of the Harvard Office for Scholarly Communication. He says that impact motivates scientists. They want their ideas to get wide exposure through publication in high prestige journals and lots of citations. Such journals, including the New England Journal of Medicine and The Lancet, have what we call high impact factors, which reflect the average number of citations that journal received in a given year. But impact simply doesn't tell the whole story. It's not a representation of the worth of a given article, let alone a representation of the, the worth of an author on that article. The problem is that a journal may publish work across many different disciplines with different citation habits. And even when a paper receives lots of citations, the total number is neutral. It doesn't say whether the new research supports or overturns the paper. Experts in the field may know that a paper citations have overturned it, but as the case of the opioid letter shows, it's a flawed system. The issue of sifting through lots of references to figure out the quality of a source isn't new. In the beginning of the World Wide Web, browsers displayed pages that received the most links. The higher the count, the higher the visibility. This was a seemingly fair appraisal of value, but the quality of links wasn't being judged, only the quantity. Google eventually improved this model by weighing both the quantity and the quality of links with PageRank and today it is still used in Google's internal algorithm. And lawyers have a system called Shepherd Citations. It follows the same logic. When a lawyer writes a brief, they shepherdize to check if more recent judgments have overturned a case that they want to use as precedent. But so far, scientists haven't had that kind of tool. We think there's a better way to look at research, and it's not just to look at impact and kind of sexiness of articles, but to really look at is it reliable or not. That's Josh Nicholson, who got a PhD from Virginia Tech 
and then later co-founded a startup called Sight. His team has built a machine learning platform that uses artificial intelligence to judge how citations were used in articles. From a starting batch of 40,000 human judge classifications, the automated process learns to evaluate articles and it places millions of citations into three buckets, supported, contradicted, or mentioned. This platform is currently in beta and the automated algorithm is being tested by a group of researchers who signed up to participate. Josh showed me how his platform works. He pulled up a paper on his database and clicked through the filtering buttons that isolate supported, refuted, and mentioned citations. It's not perfect though, uh, and we think it's just a, a way for researchers to discover uh, the literature behind it. Invited researchers have already contested classifications, and when disputes are filed, Cite turns to impartial scientists that judge the validity of the challenge. If a classification requires a correction, Cite employees step in to update the citation manually. Cite has the potential to help people navigate this web of references and judge for themselves how a paper stacks up. But there's a complication. You can see that we don't have all citations, so we're working exclusively with open citations for the time being. Cite's algorithm can only see and sort an article if it's open access, if it's available to anyone for free. That's a big vulnerability because many of the top journals lock their content behind a paywall and any citing articles published there wouldn't be counted in the site's database. Going back to Shepard's citations, the legal tool, they work because the vast majority of court documents are public. Suber says that there are major cultural shifts that would have to take place before science embraced open access. The chief obstacles are cultural, the incentives that induce faculty to publish in one kind of place rather than another kind of place, or to dispose of their copyright in one kind of way rather than another kind of way. And I don't want to say I'm pessimistic about that, but I want to say solving those problems is a long-term game. We activists for open access have to play the long game to deal with them. Super does believe that companies like Cite can help bring greater transparency, but institutional change can't begin until incentivizing structures change. For PLOS's Veronique Kiermer, even open access is not enough. We've talked about open access for a long time. We're not talking about open science. Open science is really about opening up the entire research cycle so that outputs that are produced throughout the, the research process can be actually disseminated and, and interrogated by more people. Could open science help prevent errors? Errors like those in the flawed opioid letter in 1980? We'll never know. But we do know that the citation of that letter helped trigger a widespread health epidemic. It's tempting to try to put a number on the worth of a paper. How good was the journal it came out in? How many other scientists reference it? But that's not how good science works. A paper is part of a conversation for others to test and revisit until we get closer to truth. More and more, we are hearing of sexual harassment cases across all disciplines. Reporter Azine Goryeshi actually uncovered a few of those cases in the science world. Interviewing her is Seth Manukin. Seth is a journalist, author, and director of MIT's graduate program in science writing. Take it away, Seth. 
It is my absolute pleasure to welcome to the podcast Azeen Gureshi, an investigative reporter at BuzzFeed News who has done a lot of reporting over the last several years and a lot of really groundbreaking reporting on sexual harassment, especially in the scientific community. Uh, Azeen, welcome to the Undark Podcast. Thanks for having me, Seth. I, I wanted to start by asking you really how you first started reporting on these stories. If I'm remembering correctly, was it Jeff Marcy, the exoplanet expert at UC Berkeley? Was that, um, I think in 2015, was that one of the first big stories about this that you reported on? That was the first story that really dug into a proven case of a faculty member sexually harassing students and really laid out the institutional response and showed how Marcy had essentially gone through an investigation that showed that he had sexually harassed students and yet was still not facing really any consequences from, you know, his very elite university that he worked at, UC Berkeley. So it was the first time that it was sort of laid out for people, A, that this is this is a problem that is happening and, and B, this is how it's allowed to continue. Before that, the BuzzFeed Science Desk had launched in January of 2015 and pretty much from the beginning, Virginia Hughes, our editor, had made it one of our goals to report on the problem of sexism in science. There had been all these like small controversies about sort of the broader culture of sexism in science. And then sort of along with that, Kate Clancy and her group had been doing these really terrific long-term studies looking at rates of sexual harassment among junior researchers in science. But there hadn't yet been sort of a, a concrete case to focus on until the Jeff Marcy case. And these students actually coming forward and filing a Title IX complaint with UC Berkeley, getting an unsatisfactory response, and then deciding they wanted to turn to the media. And then they they came to us. So, so we told that story and then um, continued reporting on this beat since then. One thing that was really striking to me, both about the Marcy case and then about a number of other cases, these were not known publicly. In a lot of cases, if there had been investigations, those investigations had occurred behind closed doors. But in some cases, it sounded like there were sort of open secrets within those communities, either within that academic institution or within that field of science. Why do you think it is that none of this came out earlier, that, that in some cases really egregious behavior was able to be kept a sort this sort of secret? I don't think, first of all, that this problem is specific to science. You know, we're seeing that all over the place. Obviously, Harvey Weinstein was one of the biggest open secrets in Hollywood. Everyone knew to some extent right. uh, what, what he was later accused of publicly. I think that one thing I've thought a lot about over the past several years of reporting on this is the role of legacy, particularly in the scientific community. There are people like Jeff Marcy or, or James Watson, for example, most recently um, reported by Amy Herman in The Times. These big stars in science where their contributions to the field have been so impactful and have inspired many generations of, of new scientists and, and really opened the pathway to, to all these new discoveries, where it's, it's hard to wrestle with their contribution to science and how to separate that from how they treated 
or how they have spoken about publicly other scientists in their midst or other other people in in society. And I think it is increasingly being realized that giving a free pass for those behaviors is damaging not only to the the people who enter the field of science, but the actual science that's produced. I think that has been a shift that that I've definitely noticed over the last few years, especially as big institutions like the NSF, NIH, AAAS, and now the National Academy of Science are, are starting to make real policy changes and try to draw a line about who can be included in this community and who, who cannot. You raise a really, I think, fascinating point. James Watson obviously recently verbalized, again, some odious views about, about race and intelligence, views that he first expressed more than a decade ago. And while he was sort of quasi-exiled the first time around. It seems that this time, this is, has really resulted in institutions cutting ties with him. The individuals who are perpetrating this behavior, whether it be sexual harassment, sexual assault, racist thinking, they obviously and correctly are the ones who are getting the lion's share of the blame in these situations. But in some ways, it, it really has been a whole culture that has allowed those people to get away with that type of behavior for so long. I do think that one thing that's become really clear since the Jeff Marcy story was made public and, you know, we've had many cases since Christian Ott, right. um, Michael Cates, Inder Verma, that's too many to name at this point. I think one thing that became clear is that there was a process in place for dealing with reports of, of sexual harassment or, or gender discrimination, but that these processes were inconsistent, that they didn't necessarily have any accountability built in, and that a lot of what institutions were doing was protecting their own liability. And then what was also being floated was, you know, how much are they factoring in their bottom line, which is, you know, some of these people that have been found to, to sexually harass students, for example, were also bringing in tens of millions of dollars of research funding to, to the universities that they worked at. So I think that what was once a secret process that maybe most people didn't even know existed, I think now is is widely understood to exist. There have been a lot of calls for making that process more transparent and more effective. And I think on the the bottom line about research funding, um, that's where the agencies really come in. Because for a long time, when I was reporting these stories, I would call NIH and I would say, you know, what what comment, if any, do you have to give on this? And they they really didn't have much to say. They had no process in place right. for for reports of sexual harassment. There was it was not it was not even part of the the calculus for deciding who gets grants because it was not even a requirement to report. NSF has since changed that. NIH is Francis Collins has come out and said that he he regrets. He came out very recently, I think this year, saying he regrets that they didn't take a stance on this earlier. They've now gone back, and I think they have removed certain people from from grants who were found to have sexually harassed people in their labs. They have also removed people from peer review. So there's beginning to be some more strings being pulled on the accountability end. And I think James Watson making comments that most people would call, you know, very openly racist, or, you know, even in 1968, writing 
about Rosalind Franklin in a way that now most people would openly declare is 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 very sexist. I think the fact that like it it took you know what fifty years for people to finally say this is completely unacceptable. You, you know you're you can't have honorary titles and all all the same things that we're seeing roll out now. I think it shows how much work there is remaining for for this actual meaningful cultural change. You know, it is very much still around us and and in the works. Like this is not going to happen overnight by erasing people's honorary titles because we've allowed this to perpetuate for 50 years, right, you know. Right. Um and that to me really speaks to another huge issue in research which is that tenure is for all intents and purposes not only a lifetime appointment, but a lifetime appointment that makes you almost seemingly bulletproof to all but the most serious charges, and even sometimes to those serious charges. It's really astounding. It seems unlikely that that's going to change because the the way that tenure is administered in, in the U.S. seems so ingrained. Have you heard of any discussion or sentiment towards examining that at all? I don't think so. That's actually something that came up over and over again in these cases when we were reporting them was people saying like the the forces at play in academia from how hierarchical it is to tenure are really, they really make this problem more uh, untenable. It's more difficult to address because of these ingrained traditions and the, the structure of this this field. And we're seeing this too with the National Academy of Sciences, which is that obviously a very elite group of scientists. I think that the makeup of of the of NAS is currently 83% male and something like the average age is like 72 years old. And it's a lifetime appointment and it's for so, you know so very representative of the population. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> But, you know, these are supposed to be like the best and brightest minds. What do you do when the best and brightest minds are given a lifetime appointment and also include people who have been shown to do terrible things? And I think they they still haven't figured out how to deal with that problem because of this sort of storied tradition, uh, you know, of what NAS is and what what legacy is in science. And I think that that's something that I'm, I'm definitely keeping an eye on. I think it's it's really an interesting existential question as we move forward in terms of how the field decides to deal with this problem. You've written about these scientists that we've talked about who are well-known in their fields, maybe not that well-known to the larger public. Um, you've also written stories about people who do have more of a following in the public at large, like Lawrence Krauss, the physicist and and famous skeptic at Arizona State University, and most recently Neil deGrasse Tyson, probably the the most prominent public scientist in the country, and arguably the most prominent and visible African-American scientist. What has it been like to publish these very hard-hitting stories about figures who have very intense, devoted, loyal public followings. Yeah, I'd say those two cases have been extremely different to report on because of that following and because of sort of who comprises that following. I think both of, both Lawrence Krauss and Neil deGrasse Tyson are huge celebrities. 
especially Neil deGrasse Tyson. I mean, he's a he's a huge celebrity sort of the public at large, but both of them have have very devoted followings among the sort of atheist skeptic crowd, which a lot has been written about this community um, online. I recommend anyone to go to go read about this because the the overlap with sort of some gamergate elements that it is a very male very geek culture gaming culture very sort of now we're seeing kind of anti-me too community um i, I don't want to make any generalizations about their fans you know I'm not saying that everyone um, falls into that category, but definitely when we've published those two stories, the response was different. There were a lot of people who were saying that there was no evidence against them. Um, and this this is particularly the case in the Lawrence Krauss story. The sort of foundation of, of the skeptic community is, is to reject belief and to rely on evidence to, to in, in order to, to understand the world around us, that gets in a very tricky situation when, when evidence can be called into question and when the only quote unquote evidence being presented is, is the testimony of a, a woman who, in this case, you know, underwent harassment by, by Lawrence Krauss. So we saw a lot more questioning, a lot more sort of vitriol directed towards the the women who came forward, I think, in those two cases versus the academics that we were talking about right. previously, um, which which was interesting. You know, we, we definitely, I definitely expected it with Lawrence Krauss because sexual harassment and sexual assault and even rape have been raised, raised as issues in that community over the last five years or so as, as women have become more prominent in the skeptic community. With Neil deGrasse Tyson, it was also somewhat expected just because he's such a beloved figure. And that's something we go into in the story is that that was something that all the, the women coming forward really wrestled with as well was that this very, very, the most probably ever prominent black scientist might be sort of a casualty of, of this and then they they were very clear in saying that you know to them the true casualty was was the woman who claimed to have been raped by him 30 years ago you know another black scientist that was was lost potentially to the field the other big difference with Lawrence Krauss and Neil deGrasse Tyson is that the stories that we had written before that I'd written before about um, Jeff Marcy, Michael Cates, C Christian Ott, those all came before Harvey Weinstein, before Me right. Too. Yep. Lawrence Krauss and Neil deGrasse Tyson are stories that that we published here at BuzzFeed after this had become, you know, one of the biggest national conversations. And I think built into that being a big national conversation is a knee-jerk response among some people that, you know, oh, this is just another Me Too story. Me Too has gone too far. That that adage that we're seeing come up more and more. So I think there there's a little bit more, sometimes some nuance lost because people think they know what to expect at this point. Yeah, the skeptic community, I mean, we could have a two-hour conversation just about that. It's a community I know uh, a little bit because of some of my previous work. And it really is, I, I think you you were very diplomatic in saying that there was some overlap with, with some aspects of Gamergate. There is a very vocal aspect of that community that is 
pretty aggressively critical of not only the Me Too movement, but in some cases of women in general being a part of or being a vocal part of the skeptic movement, which I think a lot of people, you know, from the outside would assume, oh, here's a movement that, you know, is opposed to quackery and support science-based medicine. You would not see that, but but it, it shows that the type of sexism that you're writing about and that we're dealing with as a society really is is pervasive across all all different fields and all different areas. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I mean, you, you again and again, they were they would say, you know, show us the evidence, and it, it becomes very clear who who gets to decide what what evidence is exactly. um, really matters. Zooming out completely, you know, I think that's something that the scientific community more generally is grappling with is that what happens when the people who have sort of shaped this field in a very fundamental way have these abhorrent views or have treated women around them in a sexist way, does that sort of seep into the the science they made and, and the science that people made after them? Like, I think there are really a lot of deeper questions that people are, are definitely grappling with right now as a result. And one thing, Seth, I did want to touch on, I think there is this far more difficult conversation happening right now about what sort of happens to these people once their honorary titles are stripped, once, you know, once they do resign or get fired or whatever, what, what, what do we do with them? And should they just be expelled altogether? Is that really what the goal is here? And my, my, very good friend who is brilliant, who's been reporting on on sexual assault for um, longer than I have, wrote uh, op-ed for the Times talking about this in the context of Charlie Rose and Louis C.K. staging comebacks. What as a society do we want to to do with these, as she put it, bad men? And I think that is an ongoing question that is is super interesting to me. The th- the one of the things she talks about at the end of that op-ed is um, a more restorative justice approach that doesn't work in every instance, but is a, a thing that I think is worth thinking about, which is engaging a lot more with the the deeper problems that are at play here and engaging in at, in some instances with with the uh, perpetrators themselves. Um, and I think that takes, a different approach than than expelling people altogether. It's difficult, and I, you know, I'm I'm a reporter. I report on these problems. I don't have the answers to to what will fix them, but I, I highly recommend anyone who's who's sort of interested in the the what's next question in reading that op-ed. Azine, it, it has been incredibly wonderful talking to you. It's been so incredible reading your reporting over these last several years. For anyone who uh, is not familiar with all these issues, I, I could not recommend more strongly reading Azine's pieces on BuzzFeed about all of these cases and, and issues of sexual harassment more generally. It's really groundbreaking work. And I think that as much as the New York Times is and, and the New Yorker's Harvey Weinstein reporting got the larger Me Too conversation started, your reporting and BuzzFeed's reporting really played a crucial step in, in, in initiating that conversation and a step that I think we should recognize. So Azeen Gureshi, thank you again so much for being on the Undark podcast. Thanks, Seth. Thanks for having me. Of course. I, I, I hope we, uh, we talk again soon.
Well, that is all on Dark Listeners. Thank you for joining us. We're produced by Lydia Chain, music is by the Undark team, and I'm your host, Kasha Patel. Talk to you next month. <laughs>